ahead and we'll start our reading in Genesis 15:1, where it says, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And when the fowls came down from the carcass upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not heirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. And it came to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And we'll read our golden text together this morning. Abram believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Our golden text illuminated this morning says the scripture reminds us of the cry of the Reformation, the cornerstone of Luther's theology. The just shall live by faith. The just man is a person who is accounted righteous before God. This is righteousness comes from faith in Jesus Christ, and it is through his grace and not by our works. God gave Abram an example of faith. He is called the father of all believers. Righteousness was imputed to him as he staggered not at the promise of God. Our upright Christian behavior is a clear indication that we have been touched by the Master's hand. When our daily activities and hearts are righteous, we are giving evidence that we have a living faith. It is clear that true faith is not just a single event, but is also a lifelong pursuit, a way of life. It persists to the end. The ongoing work of grace is further explained in Hebrews 3.13, where we are told to exhort one another, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The Christian life is likened to a war, and we must arm ourselves for the battle. Supporting our king, we are to wear righteousness as a breastplate to protect our hearts from the deceitfulness of the devil and his followers. We do not know specifically how God spoke to Abram and Ur of the Chaldeans, but when Abram came to Canaan, the Lord appeared to him and made a covenant with him concerning the promised land. The faith Abram had in God's blessing counted as righteousness. Abram was the first of the patriarchs. His earthly and eternal destiny was determined by God's power and Abram's faith, which God graciously blessed. The love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. 
not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy in Titus 3, 4 through 5. Salvation is all of grace, not works. The 11th chapter of Hebrews recounts several heroes and heroines of the faith. The pilgrims listed in Hebrews 11 are heirs, just as we are of God's eternal kingdom. The way this happens is the same. We became heir of righteousness, which is by faith. A failure to show any growth over time as the fruits of righteousness indicates that the individual does not possess saving faith. His worldly righteousness is not the imputed righteousness of God. Only by trusting in Christ alone can we obtain righteousness in God's sight. Isaiah 64.6 explains that humans' righteousness is not the same as God's. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. Abram trusted in God, and God counted that belief as righteousness. Our attempts at righteousness apart from God's grace always fall short. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained the difference between man's attainments and the righteousness of God. Human effort will not result in entry into the kingdom of heaven. Human efforts at righteousness have no eternal value. God's righteousness imparts the kingdom of God and heavenly rewards. Like Abram, we live by a faith that is counted as God's righteousness, not a feeble righteousness of our own creation. And as we look at our golden text illuminated, we, we should notice that there's a lot of people in this world that we think are wonderful, good people. And, and I think I was a pretty good person before being saved. However, that was man's standard of good. Not God's standard of good. God's standard of good is perfection because God is perfect. And if God is perfect, his bar he sets is the bar of perfection. Now, we, none of us can ever be perfect. On our best day, we have fault, we have failure, we have sin. Uh, Paul said the, the harder he tried to do good, the worse he did. And, and the worse he tried to avoid sinning, the more he sinned. Um, he saw daily that he failed God. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, by putting his faith in the shed blood of Christ, he received Jesus' righteousness and got in a right standing with God. Not because he wrote the Bible, the, all those books of the New Testament, not because he was a good person, not because of anything he'd done, but all because of what Christ did. And because he received that from God and received God's Spirit, he lived a whole lot better. But he still wasn't sinless. He still had fault. We see places he made mistakes. He confesses his faults. We see God's chastisement on him, God's correction on him, and we see him grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Look at question one this morning. It asks, why did God tell Abram to not be afraid? So Abram, once he rescues Lot, he really opens himself up to a war of retaliation. Uh, the fear of retaliation is the main reason we see God's reassurance in 15.1. As we see God's reassurance, it says basically God is telling him to stop being afraid. All he's saying is basically, stop being afraid, Abram. I'm a shield for you, your very great reward. God's care for Abram is to be seen as preventing the Mesopotamian coalition from returning and settling the score. God is going to compensate Abram for conducting his military campaign. Even though he had passed up a reward from the king of Sodom, God was still going to reward Abram, his descendants, with the land. Now, as we see that take place, um, we can think of our own lives. There are plenty of ways you could obtain money, 
power, popularity, and all these things through sinful means. But we reject those as Christians in order to do things God's way, and we know God will take care of us in the long run. Uh, there are plenty of things in my lifetime that I've turned down money opportunities because the Lord will look at and will remind me very quickly that they were not godly ways of attaining them. So I had to shun that and accept God's way, and God has always taken care of me. He's never left me nor forsake me. And as we have the promises of God, we shouldn't seek out sinful manners to, to better ourselves because God knows what we stand in need of. God knows what's best for us, and it may not be a life of riches. But maybe for some reason God knows he needs to protect us from wealth. There's a lot of burden in wealth sometimes. Uh, people don't depend upon God enough. People don't look to God enough. People become greedy, which is sinful. Um, so there's sometimes God, he, he takes things away from us in order to protect us from those things. Question two asks, why did Abram speak of Eliezer being his heir? We see here a cycle. As a cycle that God really expects to go on till today. Um, when we are babies, our you know our elders take care of us, and as we become adults, elders get older. It's our job to step up and help take care of the elders of our community, the senior citizens of our community, with whatever physical needs they may have that they may not be able to do themselves. Um, in biblical days, if you were childless, you had no child. What happened was you basically adopted a child. A lot of times a slave, a servant. And what their goal was is during your lifetime, they help take care of you. Um, because if, if any of you th here think that you're not going to need someone to take care of you, you're being very deceptive. The most powerful lesson I was ever taught is when I was working in the nursing home as a nursing assistant. And... Uh, first time I had to go in and, and bathe another human being and I thought oh my goodness I'm overwhelmed and the older lady who was sort of my supervisor she said remember someday you're going to be in that position and you're going to want someone to take really good care of you so you do the exact same thing for them and I thought how humbling we are all going to be in that condition if we are so blessed someday that we are going to live a life that we're eventually going to need a little help along the way and back in biblical days you didn't have a whole community to help you you adopted a slave a servant they took care of you now the way that worked out for them is once you passed away, they were your heir. They received everything you had just like a natural son or daughter would. So you had someone to take care of you. They had inheritance that they received. Um, and so that's basically what they was doing with Eliezer. He had no one to take care of him in his older days, so he had adopted Eliezer as his own to help um, take care of him and to receive the inheritance that he stood in need of. Now here's what happens. Um, if you have adopted a child and you have one after the fact, that child basically becomes second in command. Your birth child becomes your number one heir. The child you've adopted becomes number two. So God's told him, says, listen, you, you, know, you may have thought this is your heir, but this is not your heir. I am giving you the heir that, that I want you to have that your lineage will come through. It's going to be done by God's design, as everything is ultimately in the end. Number three asks, what was God's response to Abram's question? Abram would have an heir directly, not through 
And we should really take notice here of God's love because if God was this big, mean bully, he could have struck Abram down for doubting him, questioning him, um, all these things, but God didn't do that. He reassures Abram. He doesn't rebuke him at all. Um, the Bible is clear that he considers the frailty of our humanity and knows that we are unsteady beings. Instead of rebuking Abram, God directly addresses his concern. He reassures him that his heir would be his own biological son, and he ensures this takes place, as we know later on. Um, God is not there to be this, uh, this just mean, powerful deity that is trying to strike you down every time your faith grows weak. He is a father. Just as we celebrated Father's Day, we have earthly fathers, he's a heavenly father. And in the same way, he has a care and protection for his children, his flock. When you uh, doubt him, when you are confused, when you are having issues, don't be fearful of God. That is when you need to get the closest to God. Um, and by trying to put on an act that you have it all figured out, you're not going to fool God. God knows when you're a mess. He knows when we're all a mess. And he is there all the same to love you, to help you, to reassure you, and to explain the situation to you. Now, he may, not, may never speak to you in audible voice until you're in front of him in glory, but it doesn't change that still small voice, that spirit that dwells inside you. The great comfort of the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit which helps comfort you, direct you, lead you, and get you where you need to be. There's plenty of times God intervenes in our lives to get us where he wants us to be uh, when we're confused and don't know how to get there ourselves. Again, we talked about Paul last Sunday night going to Rome. Paul wanted to go to Rome all through the book of Acts we see there. But Paul couldn't figure out how to get to Rome. What did, what did God do? God got him arrested, put him on a prison ship, sent him to Rome. He got him there. Not the way Paul had intended, but he got him there. So I remember, your God is in control, and he will take care of all things. Number four. What object lesson did God use to explain his plans for Abram's descendants? So God had already made a promise of innumerable descendants that Abram would have. Now these promises he's making now may refer to the church. We don't know. Abram wouldn't have seen it that way though. But if you look at the church today, as long with the nation of Israel, uh, the numbers are definitely outseeing the numbers of the stars. And all these people who have come to faith, going all the way back to Abraham, all the way till today, will be together with someday in heaven. And we, as we see God making this promise... Sometimes God shows us things that we don't quite understand at that time. Um, when I was doing the prayer club at Logan Middle School and I kept on being forced to do devotions and stuff, I never saw that molding me into a pastor role at the time. It was just something that seemed to happen quite often. And all of a sudden I realized now looking back, that was God forerunning things to get me prepared for what was to come. Um, when we think about the bad things, when I had issues with my blood and was going back and forth to specialists, that was really aggravating. And I thought, where is God in all this? However, God drew me a lot closer to him by giving me a need to rely upon him. So a lot of times when God is showing us something, and the message may not always be clear, but what he plans to accomplish with it, he will accomplish. And God can accomplish and speak to you through things that you couldn't even imagine. 
Um, we see so many times in the Bible, he speaks through dreams, through prophets, through visions, uh, spoke to Moses through a burning bush. I mean, you name it, God can speak to you if you're willing to open and just willing to listen to hear what God has to say. Number five, what important statement is made about Abram and his response to God's explanation? So we see here that Abram has D said had been converted much earlier. He already believed, he already had a faith in what God was saying, but this is a growth in his faith. Um, don't think the moment of conversion is the end of the road. Once you get converted, you're just starting this journey of, of being a Christian. Uh, you come to faith, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you trust in Him, uh, you follow that in water baptism, it's your first act of obedience once God saves you, and then you continue to grow in faith. Now God justified Abram because of one thing. It was not because of his works, but it was because of his belief, his faith, his trusting in God. Abram's normal response to God's words to him was to believe them. Abram had trusted the person of God previously, but he evidently had not realized that God would give him an heir of his own body. Uh, in the middle of the Bible is perhaps one of the most important verses we see there, and that is the justification based upon faith. Now, we are in the same boat today. We are justified just as if we never sinned the sight of God because of our faith. Our conversion is because of our faith. It is not because of any religious act. Yes, water baptism is obedience to God, but it is not what converts you. It is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we complicate this so much for people. And it, it irks me when I hear an, an invitation and it gets all convoluted when you're talking about all these different religious things. We need to get all that out of the way when we're talking about salvation. Don't worry about the religious aspects of things. Explain to them about faith. Do they believe in the death, burial, and resurrection? Do they believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins? And are they willing to trust in that? That's really all it boils down to. There's not, no reason to make this a difficult process for people. Um, I had a, a, a pastor one time that I knew. I, I can't say I was close to him, but I knew him. And he had this big thing that you couldn't get saved unless it was at a church service and in the front of a church. And that's the most unbiblical concept there ever was. Um, God is everywhere. He's in all places and all things. And there is no certain location or certain position you must be in to receive him. You just have to be willing to accept him by faith. And allow him to come in and dwell with you. The Bible says in the book of Revelations that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. In other words, he wants to be with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. You just got to be willing to open yourself to that relationship. And how does that happen? By faith. By believing. And when we believe and put our faith in him, our actions follow that. Because once you believe Jesus is Lord, and you have completely bought into what the Bible says, it starts to mold you and change you a little bit doesn't make you perfect, doesn't make you sinless, but it does change your actions. And it begins to put God first. And I thank the Lord that I'm a little bit better today than I was yesterday. And I pray I'm a little bit better tomorrow than I am today. And I continue to grow until the Lord decides to call me home. Um, but that growing is not what saves me. I was saved because I, I trusted in Jesus. 
And then after I trusted him, he grew me. It is all about Jesus, and it is not at all about us. Uh, number six. I'm going to slow down a little bit. Number six. What aspect of Abrahamic covenant did God then affirm? Those that are sure of the promised seed shall see no reason to doubt the title to the promised land. If Christ is ours, then heaven is ours as well. Now, if you believe, if you believe that Jesus can choose you as part of his bride, part of his church, the belief that heaven will be our inheritance should not be a far-fetched thing to believe. Um, we should very, and, and I tell you what, it's a big old comfort quite often because the worst thing that we ever imagine in life is death. And here's the scary reality. Death is coming. There is, unless the Lord you know, returns first for his church, unless we're raptured out here, death is going to come for all of us. Nothing we can do about it. We don't know the day nor the hour of the return of our Lord, and we don't know the day or the hour that we're going to leave this earth by death. Now, what we do know is there is an eternity that comes afterwards. Now, we're promised as Christians that heaven will be our eternity, period. There is nothing we can do to mess that up. There is nothing we can do to change that. God is not going to put us through a purgatory or a staging ground. All that is falsehood. When we are saved and born again, the bride will be with the groom, which is Jesus. We will be with God in heaven forever if we are saved and born again. Now, the scary reality for those that are lost is the polar opposite of that. If you are unsaved, death is real, and then we, you have the second death, which... Uh, we're going to look a little bit tonight as well on Sunday, in our Sunday night sermon. But basically there is no hope. Our blessed hope is in Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope is in heaven where no bad thing will dwell. Now, I don't know about you, but on my best day, there's bad things that happen. Um, I, there's plenty of things I enjoy. I could be on vacation having the best time ever and something bad will surely happen. Typically, it's city traffic because I don't navigate that very well, and I get frustrated and aggravated, and the time I get there, I'm all flustered, uh, usually late. And then I something bad has happened on my trip. In heaven, there will be nothing bad. We have a tile to a city of perfection. No sickness, no death, no pain, no sadness, no turmoil, no nothing but perfection in the presence of God. You can't get no better than that. And this is the worst. Living here is the worst thing that will ever happen for a Christian. Because here we do have pain. Here we do have suffering. Uh, we have, you know, I woke up this morning, back's hurting, allergies are bothering me. I, I had to take medicine to get through the day and everything else for my blood pressure. I have all these aches and pains that the world and life has given me. All those are gone in heaven. And that's what's waiting the church. That's what's waiting God's children. Um, and we can all have that just by becoming a child of the Lord. Number seven, why did, why did Abram ask for further explanation about the land? This was a straightforward statement that caused Abram to voice a question. Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? He had believed God's promises of a son, but he needed reassurance about this added promise. 
question was probably not caused by doubt because he had already believed what God had told him previously. But this was a tremendously expansive promise, the entire land. How was God going to accomplish that? While he believed what God was saying, it would be reassuring to have some kind of a sign. So Abram is requesting a supernatural verification that God is going to indeed fulfill this distant promise. Now, um, looking at the New Testament, what talks about signs, we could look at this as a sign of weakness, but that's really not what it is. Because God is, Abram's not asking for the sign to find God's will. He knows God's will. He's asking for a sign for reassurance. And let's face it, folks, I don't care if you're 8 or 80, in the sight of God, you're a child. And every child needs reassurance. Uh, that's when you, you see a small child get fearful or something. It's not that there's anything wrong with them. They just, they're children. That's their nature. They need reassurance of someone they love and trust. Well, it's the same thing for Abram. He loves and trusts the Lord. He wants God's reassurance that what God says will truly happen. He requests, um, his request shows that he was actually taking God seriously, that he believed what he said. He just wanted one more time for God to say, you know, this is truly going to come to pass. When we see that we think of the same thing, oftentimes God reassures that we may not say, Lord, I need a sign from heaven for da-da-da-da-da. But there's plenty of times we get a little bit nervous or anxious about a situation, and we go to God, and God finds ways to reassure us. Um, I'll tell you right now, the most painful thing for a pastor is Saturday night. Because Saturday night, you find yourself very nervous for Sunday, and I don't think it ever goes away. Uh, because you want everything to be just perfect. You want everyone to enjoy the service. You want God to move amongst your people. You want all these things to be done. You want nothing to go wrong. And you realize in the reality that can never truly happen, but that's what you want. And every pastor I've ever talked to feels the exact same way. Saturday night is just your brain goes a thousand miles per hour. But oftentimes, God finds ways to reassure us all the same. Um, I talked to a friend of mine last night who called, and he was, he, or we talked online, he had the same issue. He said, man, I'm just nervous about tomorrow. I said, well, aren't we all? Um, it's part of the deal. And same thing when you have, a, you have a doctor's appointment. You're nervous about going. A lot of times, God will speak to you in some way, and he'll remind you he is God. He is in control. And we're not doing things by just accident down here. Things happen for a purpose. God is still on the throne. Yeah, the devil's making a lot of turmoil, but it doesn't change who's in control in the end, and that's God. And if you look at the end of the book, who is victorious? It's God. It's not going to be the devil. Our destination as the church has already been set in stone. Nothing's going to happen to change the way this Bible ends. God is going to make sure that our place is eternal. Our name is recorded in that land's book of life eternally. We are kept in the palm of God's hand. It is all about God and his sovereignty and not about us. And that, I tell you what, that reassures me. That it knows, lets me know my weakest day and my worst mistakes, God can overcome all that. His grace is sufficient for all situations. So whatever you're going through this morning, realize God's grace is sufficient if we're just willing to trust him. Not just for salvation, but for everything that comes through in our lives. Number eight, what did God have him do? God used a reputation procedure from the surrounding culture to show Abram his intentions about his matter. In this custom, animals were cut in two and two halves laid on the ground opposite each other. The two parties making the agreement would walk between the 
divided pieces, thus binding them to the covenant agreement, presumably if one of these parties broke the covenant, the subsequent death of the animals would no longer be efficient, and he himself or possibly his cattle would be subject to death. Following this, this presumably the animals would either be roasted and eaten or else simply consumed by fire. All right, and I love this little part story of the Bible because it's such a, a if we look at the moral of the the sacrifice here and the covenant, it is such a picture of our salvation. Uh, he uses five different animals here. This shows it's a very solemn occasion. It is not a time of celebration or anything. It's a very solemn, serious situation. Now, the killing of the sectioning of the animals, so he killed them and split them up. Uh, was done by Abram. This was a sacrificial preparation. This was not actually when he made the covenant. This is when he is sacrificing and preparing for the covenant. Now, the ratification, if you know anything about law, what takes place is, um, you know, we, we have our own country's laws and our state laws. Legislature will vote. It becomes a thing. But it's not a law yet. It's a bill. And then it goes to the governor, the president. When they put their signature on it, it is ratified. It is official. It is in the books. So when Abram makes this sacrifice and prepares these animals, it's not official yet. He is, he is preparing it, preparing for that ratification of the covenant between him and God. Now, when God passes in between these pieces, it pledges the fulfillment of what takes place. Now, what would happen in ancient traditions if, if you and someone else was making an agreement? You would kill these animals, let them out there, set them out there, and you would walk together between them. And as you did, your covenant was a, your covenant contract agreement was made. Now, when that contract agreement was made, it was official. It was legal. It was binding. Now, here's what happens. They don't both walk between the animals. Only God in his spirit walks amongst the animals. Abram goes into a deep sleep. So now the covenant is not dependent upon Abram keeping his part of the deal. The covenant is dependent upon God. Your covenant is the same way. Your covenant has got nothing to do with you. We are saved by grace through faith. Well, here's the key to that. Who is the author and the finisher of our faith? It is Jesus Christ. So look at that. It becomes not about you keeping promises, you being good, you being perfect. It comes by an almighty, powerful, loving God that does everything that needs to be done for you to shun hell and receive heaven. All about God. And that really should drive you to worship him because that is the coolest thing that I could ever imagine is that the creator of everything that I see around me, the keeper of life and death, the man that has the keys to hell and has overcome death, hell, and the grave has done everything that needs to take place for me to go to heaven. That with all my faults and failures, when I make a mistake, when I mess up, does not change the contract agreement between me and God. He is the keeper of that, not me. It is his land's book of life, not mine. And I'm in the palm of his hand. He is not in the palm of mine. So because of that, I can fully rely and depend upon the everlasting arms of God for everything that I may stand in need of. Because even when I'm a mess, God is still completely secure. He is completely calm. And he is completely in control of the situation. And I'm thankful because I, I know I would never be able to do that on my own. Number nine asks, what did God say would happen over a period of 400 years? Abram's descendants were going to be strangers in a foreign country for 400 years before they took possession of this land God was giving them. They would be mistreated by those over them. The word afflicted was given in Exodus 
how literally this happened to the Israelites in Egypt. The end of the story, however, was that God would judge the nation that oppressed them, and they would be freed and leave Egypt with much wealth. So 400 years of enslavement. Um, and we've seen this story. Most of us all seen the old Ten Commandments movie. Uh, you had the Prince of Egypt cartoon, which my kids love. Um, happens from 1845 B.C. to 1446 B.C., the date of the Exodus, where they go out of Egypt, cross the, the sea there, and they're going into the wilderness and all that that takes place. And here, when I read this, what I often think is about myself. 400 years, they were slaves, the Egyptians. That's not a good life to live. Nobody wants to be a slave. And I often get really ashamed of myself when I read it because if I have a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, I get real for my own little pity party. But these Israelites were slaves for 400 years. How many generations went through enslavement and never did get over to the other side of the river? It didn't change. God didn't abandon them. When the deliverer came, Moses, God prepared him. He made a way, and here's the thing: remember, the Pharaoh was killing all the Egyptian, I mean, all the Israelite children. So God even protected Moses for the purpose of setting free the Hebrews. Because if God hadn't protected Moses, the Hebrews would not have went free. Jesus would not have came. That lineage would have died right there. But God's hand was in it. Even when things looked horrible for the Israelites, God's hand was in it. He protected the plan. And if he had not protected that, that child, Moses, you and I would not have an opportunity of salvation. Bloodline would have died. But what happened? God was there. God was, took care of everything needed to be done for his plan to be fulfilled. Number 10. Why was God giving so much time to the Canaanites? two things I want you to see here. First off, realize the Canaanites were wicked people. What did God do though? And here's the thing, even when God knew these people would not follow him, what did he do? He still allowed himself to be presented and with his grace gave them the opportunity. Now God is not full when someone don't accept him. He knows who's going to accept him and not and who's going to receive him and not. He knows that. But what does he do? He allows them to hear the gospel anyways. And in that he is justified because he has given them an opportunity whether they want to receive him or not. I mean the bottom line is if God wanted to, the moment we are born he could save you or not save you because he knows what you're going to do with your life. He knows what's going to happen with you. But he gives you an opportunity, a gracious opportunity to accept him or deny him. And then it is up to us what we do with that opportunity. God is not a bully that forces you into anything. He allows you an opportunity with his grace and mercy to receive him as Savior. Um, we see that time and time again throughout the Bible with the Pharaoh. Again, what happened? He knew the Pharaoh was not going to listen to Moses 
and uh, and Joshua there. He knew he wasn't going to listen to him. Sorry, not Joshua, Aaron. He knew he wasn't going to hear what he had to say. But he even tells him, he says, listen, he's not going to listen to you. In fact, because he won't, I will continue to harden his heart because of the Pharaoh's rejection. But what happened, Moses continually goes to the Pharaoh time and time again and says, let my people go. Let my people go. We do the same thing with the gospel. We say, accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept salvation. Repent and believe on him. People do. People reject. But God presents the gospel message to every man, woman, and child where they have the opportunity at salvation. And as Sister Joy read the closing part there as we see the end of this, it says, After the sun had set that a day of the smoking fire pot and the burning torch with together represented the presence of God appeared and passed between the pieces of Abraham's uh, slaughtered sacrifice, the covenants in the patriarchal times was ratified. It was made official. When two agreeing parties would walk together, here the covenant God made with Abram that day was based entirely on God's word, not Abram's performance. This means that the only way the covenant could be broken was if God violated his own word, which is impossible. As Christians, we want to be people of great faith, but sometimes doubt creeps in and clouds our vision. Choosing to trust in God's word will chase doubt away and help us to live in righteousness. And and I know we have all been there, where a bad situation takes place and we say, man, where is God at? Have I not been faithful to him? Where is he at? But God is right there. He is He is not uh, unknowing of your situation. He knows your pain. He knows your, your trials, your tribulation. He knows all things. And yes, sometimes things get really rough in this world, in this life. Think of poor Job. Job was a faithful servant to the Lord. He was a good man. Um, and what did the devil do? The Lord allowed the devil to basically take away everything he had except his life to prove Job. And the Bible talks that the church will be sifted like wheat. And the reason for that is not because God's this mean God that wants to punish us, but it's because God wants to strengthen our faith. He wants to show us who is truly in the faith. He wants to reveal that to you, not to me. I don't know your faith. That's between you and God. That's, uh, that's one thing a pastor cannot do. He cannot tell you who a true convert is. Got no way of knowing it. I can look at your fruits. Your fruits can bear what the Bible says. But ultimately it's between you and God. But you must have faith. Without faith we cannot please God. God doesn't expect perfection. He expects faithful obedience. And we only can do it by believing in what God says through His Word. If we trust His Word, trust the promises of God, we'll find out that our lives go so much smoother. My most difficult trying times is when Justin Basin is trying to do his own stuff. When I'm trying to fix my own problems. The minute I sit down and say, you know what, this must be the Lord's deal. Um, was I was Thursday, I think it was. Thursday or Friday one, I was putting rock in my backyard. And I'll, I'll tell the story and I'll, we can ring the bells. But I was putting rock in the backyard. And as I often do, I got Dad's truck stuck in a hole because I'm good at that. If I find a hole, I will put a truck in it. It doesn't matter. I get stuck every single time. Um, and thankfully, i got good neighbors that come pull me out all the time. Um, but I put that truck in the hole, and many times in my life, I got frustrated. I would try to put rocks under it, boards under it, everything under the sun. This time I got out, turned the truck off, and I said, Well, when it's time, that truck will get out of that hole. And I found myself, it went a whole lot smoother. I was a whole lot less aggravated at the end of the day. Um, folks, there is nothing to be stressed about in this world. The Bible tells us that having concern and worry is all sinful. We just need to trust God. 
I, have, I know pastors, and I've been guilty of it myself, that get all tore up over this and that. Listen, it's not ours. This is God's world, God's creation, and God is in control. So I encourage you to place your faith, believe on Him. Not just for your salvation, but for everything you stand in need of. Um, this tonight, we have Brother Drew Bledsoe and Michaela McLemore with us singing. I